Welcome to our next big thing podcast. Um, so joining me today is author, entrepreneur, and former MP uh, Selena Cesar Chivan, who is also here to talk about her new book called "Can You Hear Me Now." Um, so Selena, thank you, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate um, being on the podcast with you, and uh, thank you, thank you to all your listeners as well. <laughs> So, uh, you know, obviously this book is very revealing. It's very authentic. It's very personal. Um, so you, you, you came to Canada at an early age, like mm-hmm. around the age of two. And you described your first, you know, your arriving into the country, you, just, you describe it as being underwhelming and unfriendly. Um, so in your view, what, what was it about Canada that was underwhelming and unfriendly at the time? Well, the way I describe it in the book, of course, I came from Grenada. Grenada is uh, in the Caribbean. It's sunny. It, uh, the houses are painted in these bright pink colors, and there's a lot of vibrancy and blush green. And I arrived in January in Toronto. <laughs> and, you know, there are no leaves on the trees. Everything is great. Like, from what I could imagine, like, I'm just thinking about a, a January day today um, now and everything is great there's no leaves on the trees there's no warmth and so it's kind of like in my imagination thinking back to the two-year-old self would have been like you took me out of you know the land of Oz and brought me to you know that scene from Canada where everything is black and white (laughs) you reversed the story for me a little bit and you know when after you settled in Canada you you made frequent trips back back home and and you know in the book you describe it as being you know the oasis of your life you know you you treasure those moments going back home and then returning to Canada how how do you think those visits sort of shaped your your sense of identity you know especially in Canada where you felt like you didn't you didn't have an identity you didn't belong in Canada well I think you know once you get like a firm sense of identity no matter where you are eventually you figure out how to fit in and so uh, coming from Grenada, you know, I, I live with my paternal grandparents and my aunt at the time and really was in, from what I can remember and clearly the relationship with my grandparents were, was a very loving relationship. So coming to Canada, you know, although the environment was cold, I didn't have a choice but to fit in um, and to really establish myself. This was going to be my new home. So might as well, you know, make the best of it, <laughs> clearly. In, in university, you had that similar experience where you had to, mm-hmm. you had to find uh, yourself in university. And um, you, you, you know, in the book, you talk about you, you weren't confident enough to approach, you know, the other Black students that were on campus. How, how did that also continue to shape your identity in knowing that, you know, if you weren't um, confident enough to approach uh, the black people, uh, black students on campus. How can you approach, you know, other black people in in real life and and jobs as well? Yeah, well, I think we need to set the context, right? So I'm the first person to attend university for my family, yep. and also, uh, you know, you're you're in an environment that is that you really don't see a lot of people who look like you. Mm-hmm. And so when you do see them, it's like, oh my goodness, but you can't just run up to them and hug them and say, thank God you're here, right? right. You have to sort of, it's not about being afraid, but you kind of have to be, you know, 
kind of like act like you've been here before. Right? <laughs> don't act like you're crazy. So it wasn't a matter of being afraid, but it was a matter of just understanding how the space didn't, what, what had that same gray sense of unbelonging, which again, I felt it in politics where, you know, you could, you, you know, you have to exist within the space, but that doesn't mean that the space is hospitable to you being there. Mm. Right. So um, it's, I think it's less about confidence and more about the awareness of the space that you're in and how you may have to adapt to fit into that space or how you may have to adapt to thrive and or survive in that space. And, and because you were in that space, you know, you had to work twice as hard. You had to prove yourself in ways that the people around you didn't, didn't have to. Um, right. And, and that's an additional sort of tax, right? right. So, so it's, it's that loneliness, but that's, that's the additional sort of penalty that you have to pay right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're not only trying to thrive and survive in an academic environment, which everybody has to do, mm -hmm. but then you also have to navigate through this feeling of loneliness and this sort of isolation of when you're there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit of an extra, it's a well, black tax is what we call it, but extra burden that we have to bear. Right. And then additionally to that, you know, you also had to please your parents as well, who were, who were paying for your education, who were thinking that you were succeeding in this, in this world, but you, you actually weren't. You I was Exactly. So, you know, how, how did you, you know, how did you convince yourself over and over again that, you know, I'm actually succeeding, but I'm actually not. Like, how did you continue yeah. to cover that up? You know, um, that was an interesting time in my life because I, I, I don't think I ever convinced myself I was succeeding. I just convinced myself that I wasn't going to get caught not succeeding. <laughs> and so um, it, it was, you know, I, I would say it was one of the most lowest points in my life where I was realizing that, you know, I come from high school. So education was fundamentally important to our family. Right. Like this was your only job. And I was, you know, finishing high school, top of my class, and then getting into university and failing miserably mm -hmm. like and so so on top of the pressure of going to university and being isolated now I'm like oh my god my parents are going to kill me I I had to it was self-preservation at that point right I had to I had to at least protect one part of me that I could that I could at least forge controlling Mm -hmm. And because so, I couldn't control the isolation in the environment, I couldn't control the fact that I was in university, but I could at least pretend and live in some kind of utopic space, although completely pretend um, that things were at least in my head going well, although they were <laughs> they weren't going well at all. So, you know, just just touch on this briefly, like how, you know, how was that moment where you revealed to your parents that I'm actually not going to walk across that stage. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to graduate. You know, how, how did that conversation go? Yeah. Um, that was a lot of yelling and <laughs> clearly <laughs> they had just wasted four years of tuition. Um, but it was, uh, it was shameful for me. Right. It was, you know, again, I, you know, top of my class in high school and you get like knocked off this pedestal but my descent had been so slow <laughs> because nobody knew about it. And then finally I just crashed. 
mm-hmm. right? And although it was a low point and probably the lowest point in my life, it was also the most revealing and re- most just just that sense of relief that okay, I don't have to pretend anymore. I could actually start from the bottom. Like you can't get any lower than this. The only way to go is up at this point. And so how do I get myself back up was the next question. How do I rebound from this? Okay, I clearly can't go to medical school, which I've been wanting to do my entire life. I needed to figure out what to do next, how to do it next with a 1.58 GPA. how to navigate through a world where I, you know, I'm 20 something years old, I clearly need to make a living. How am I going to do that? How is that all going to work out? And, you know, at the, the brilliance of that moment is, again, I had those foundations. So even though I was in that moment of gray, again, yeah. I knew that I had that foundation that my, to my grandparents and my parents had established that I had to work hard. And I was smart enough and I could succeed. It was just a matter of how I was going to do it after such an epic failure. And, you know, in your, in your book as well, you, you speak openly about failure. You speak openly about, about not, not getting to, you know, certain stages in your life. And, and it's, it's very, uh, I think it's very um, relatable to, to people that, that usually don't open up about failure so how you know how long did it take you to really open up and to get comfortable with that with with you know admitting that you failed or admitting that this is what actually happened oh my goodness um i think that took a couple of years right like you know once you're once you're you're kind of caught in this kind of maze of first of all forging your way through your life like literally um, but then, you know, knowing that you, you feel the shame and the guilt of, of failing and making those mistakes, you kind of, that takes a lot to kind of process through, mm. right? So you, you're feeling the guilt and shame and feel some shame. The, the challenge is not to let that consume you and then be your story for the rest of your life. And it could have been the story for the rest of my life but I already had a foundation, right? So that's where you kind of dig deep and go, okay, hold on, just pause for a moment, shake your head and you think, huh, I graduated. Maybe not with the best marks, but I graduated. Clearly I'm smart. I, I, I left you know, high school, I made it through, although fumbling, I made it through university. So, And yes, I feel guilt and shame, but I can do this. I can rise out of this, rise out of the ashes, so to speak, and do something else. I think that's where you start to build the resilience, the resilience that is required to, even though that you're in that really pit of despair, you could dig deep and realize that you do have some elements of you that you're grateful for that you could say i could take those elements and move them on to the next thing that i'm going to do and it took a couple years to get to that point but when i realized yeah i could do something else then that was the that was the spark And, you know, and you also, uh, you also touch on mental health as well. Uh, you know, speaking of the, 
the shame and the guilt and you know that's also something that you that you that you're very candid about when did you feel comfortable like addressing this you know your mental health um issues like was it only until you got into politics or was it you know before before you entered the the political world yeah so you know somebody asked me this question i was doing a, a webinar last night and somebody said you know was your ex do you think your experiences in university was the start of your your challenges with mental illness with depression and it was the first time i got asked that and i actually like think that yes it was if i were to really think about my experience especially after my grandfather passed away and just not wanting to go to that university and just those challenges i would say for sure unfortunately what tends to happen when we don't talk about mental illness within our communities, when they're stigmatized or they're taboo to even speak about, um, or they're dismissed in our communities, what ends up happening is we live with this, this illness and instead of treating it well, while it's early, while we could have the coping mechanisms to live our lives with it, we live with it without the coping mechanisms. We live with it without being treated. We live with it without, you know, figuring out how to, what medication you need, how to meditate, how to like exercise or live well. And so we've lived for the next 30 years of our life and I'm now in politics and that's the first time I'm getting diagnosed. Mm. But that, by, that, by that time it's too late. I'm 40 something years old. At that point it's too late and you know, you're, you're, at that point, you're trying to, I'm trying to catch up. I'm trying to like get diagnosed, but I'm still dealing with all of these issues. And within months of being diagnosed, I'm in a crisis at a hospital, just, you know, being essentially what should have been treated as an inpatient, um, having a, a complete mental breakdown. And, you know, what, what are the conversations that you're having with your kids, you know, right now? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I can imagine that, you know, in university, this wasn't talked about as much as it's talked yeah. now. So, you know, what, how, are you, how are you, you know, conversing with your kids and, and uh, encouraging them to speak up? Well, you know, that's a conversation that I've had, you know, well before now, just, just talking openly about, first of all, about mistakes and sort of traumas that people could have in their life. I'm a very, very open parent. So most of the things in my book, my kids already knew. And it's interesting, the conversations that we have now, when my eldest read the book, you know, we were having dinner, we always have dinner together as a family every single night. And we're calling her out for dinner, Desiree, come up, Desiree, come up for dinner. And she's like, hold on, hold on, I'm reading the book. I'm like, Desiree, like, you know how the book ends, get up here. And she comes upstairs and she's like, man, I hope Selena and Val stay together. <laughs> I'm like, we're right here. <laughs> so, so it was, it's really funny. She said, she said it's like reading the, the backstory of her life. Wow. Um, and so we really talk openly about a lot of issues, in particular mental health issues. I'm always checking in with them to make sure that they're feeling okay mm -hmm. and that they, if they need help, they're there. A, a physician is available to them and and that that option is is completely open to them at all times and i guess you know i guess you you touched on this earlier you know when when you did experience mental health but you know at the at the point of you being diagnosed was you know to a point too late um did you feel you know with these roles um that you were taking on you know having your own business being in politics 
did you constantly feel the need to conceal those mental health issues or did that give you a platform to, to speak out about it? So eventually it did, but right at the beginning, you're always thinking because it's stigmatized, because it's taboo, you don't want people to know that you're not well, right? And it's interesting because it's not the same for other conditions. Only with mental health do we hide it. If, you know, if we broke our leg or if we had another serious illness, we would talk about it because we, especially in a political environment or in a research environment, which is what my company uh, eventually did, you would want to be able to talk about and figure out how to get those treatments, figure out what policy is best to help people with those, with those conditions. But with mental health, it, it seems like we're still afraid to sort of talk about it. And then eventually maybe, you know, my first year into politics, I made the mistake, but it was actually quite good, of, you know, being asked by the Huffington Post to write a blog about um, about my experiences with mental illness. And I wrote it and it went viral. I didn't expect that to happen, but it really just brought home the point that so many people are impacted by mental illness and so many people are so quiet about it that the more people who can amplify the message of reducing stigma and removing taboo associated with mental illness, the more people that are able to do that the more people who could speak about it openly, talk about how they get treatment, talk about the fact that it's okay not to be okay. The more people that do that, the better off everyone will be. Right, exactly. Um, and you know, in 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 your book, you you talk about you know the fact that you you know that you lost the by election in twenty fourteen, and then that sort of for you that was like a devastation, you know, mentally and psychologically. And um, you know, I and my question is, you know was it difficult at that time to either acknowledge that you needed help or to go back and and figure out why it was like how how you lost that election it was both i think for me you know it, i just my style is that whenever i face a, a mistake or a drawback i always have this moment of self-reflection of how i got myself into that position like how did i lose the by-election what were some of the things that i personally did not the circumstance not everything around it but what did i do to contribute and at the same time i also you know made a promise to my family that i was going to get the help that i needed and once i got that help that i needed to you know lift the fog from my brain then you're able to really strategize about the things that you need to do like mental illness is it's like a cloud that kind of sits on or in your brain. And once it lifts and allows you to think through things properly, you're then able to strategize a little bit more. And I'm a very strategic person, but the more depressed my brain becomes, the less I'm able to do that. Your first time in politics, um, you describe as, as being sort of similar experience when you arrived in Canada, feeling, you know, being, you described it as being underwhelming and, and unfriendly, you know, when you walked into the parliament and, you know, I mean, I can understand unfriendly, but um, uh, why underwhelming? Like, you know, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, it's, you know, I think you're the only person that I've, that I've interviewed with that picked up this sense of this grayness that has been weaved through the book. Uh, very, it's, I, I appreciate that a lot. 
Um, I don't even think I picked it up, but you, you very uh, astute. Um, so yeah, the underwhelming part of it, we have to remember, and I think it's important for Canadians to remember uh, a little bit of their history, right? That when parliament was created, it was created based on exclusionary principles. Women were not allowed to be there, people of color, indigenous people. Um, so there were a lot of people excluded from the space. And in the architecture of that space, there is that feeling of exclusion. And then as years went on, there was policies that reinforced that status quo, that reinforced those feelings of oppression and, and anti-Blackness. We have an Indian Act. We had um, anti-immigration policies um, specifically to, to Black people. The Kamagatama Room, very, various uh, um, racialized groups were met with hostility that was created from within that space. So when, you, when I got there, I was very much aware of that. And then when you look at the pictures on the wall and you don't see any representation that black people in particular for me had ever contributed anything to this country. There is no evidence of that existing. Mm. There are walls and walls of white men in these right. huge frames. And that is the center of our democracy. And it's built in a way that is exclusive and it has remained visibly exclusive. And so, you know, that I want people to understand that sense of gray unbelonging that I felt when I, when I got there. And, you know, later on, uh, later on in your political career, you, or actually at the end of the book, spoiler, um, you you said that you've never felt like a like a black woman until you entered politics because you never saw yourself as just a black woman you know you had you had other roles to to fulfill yeah. but it wasn't until you entered politics that you felt this sense of isolation um do you think that that feeling ever goes away you know when you enter these spaces that are that are filled you know by dominantly white people um, I think it, it creates a heightened sense of awareness mm. towards why we need to keep the pedal on the gas when it comes to activism, when it comes to striving for equity. We, you know, racialized communities have, indigenous communities have, well, indigenous communities are the, the foundation of this country. And yet the Indian Act has been a part of their lives since 1876 and continues to legislate how they live. Um, that's wrong. Um, but we, we have, you know, we, we have to continue to strive towards a, a space or a place where there is equity in our systems um, because our democracy has tentacles into every other facet of our lives. When we look at our healthcare outcomes or the, the criminal justice system or our uh, education system, child welfare, we're seeing a disproportionate um, negative impact 
on black and indigenous people and more broadly racialized people. And how do we continue as a country to sustain itself in with that, with knowing that there's inequity? So you, we, you have to keep fighting for it. You know, as, as your political career went on and on, you were faced with criticism and you were, you know, faced with um, racial microaggressions that you addressed, um, not only in the book, but at the time as well. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was um, that you were told to, uh, you know, you had to wear the same hairstyle for like, you know, for, <laughs> for the whole uh, four years or, you know, the time that you were in, in the House of Commons. Yeah. Um, do you think, you know, being as vocal as you are now in the book um, resonates more with people? than when you were more vocal about it in your time in politics? Um, so I, I don't know. It, I, I think now I just don't have to be worried about the political party system. I could say what I want. But, you know, you're right. Like, you know, I got hate mail. I got death threats. My children got death threats. Um, I was sued. I went through mitigation. There, there were so many instances of just this backlash and gaslighting but that doesn't mean you stop right mm. like we have to remain vigilant uh until there is equity everywhere until there is justice everywhere right like a, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere so we have to keep fighting we have to keep that momentum going I feel like when you became um, the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, um, it was as if you were left to sort of fill in, you know, what what the job was and and how, you know, because it was a handed to you without a job description, basically, you know, you had to fill in the gaps. Um, what do you think? What do you think was the most, you know, agonizing part of that job? Do you think? Uh, the tokenism that came with it, you know, I, I, created a framework for the job that I wanted to do. Um, was really professional about uh, making sure that there was some accountability and timelines and um, uh, key priorities that needed to be fulfilled that were in line with the mandate that we had as a government. And uh, still, though none of those were really taken on by, um, with any kind of authority by the prime minister or the prime minister's office. So I, you know, essentially had to sort of just do things on, on my own. Right. But what was most problematic for me was um, being chosen uh, to only go to events that were related to black communities, mm -hmm. you know, not being leveraged for the capacity to be strategic or my business acumen or for my research right. background or for things I knew I was really good at, um, but just being used, you know, to represent, you know, a, a black person at an event that didn't sit well with me. And so it was easy for me to resign from that position as parliamentary secretary to the black, to the prime minister, because that is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up to be a figurehead. And I think that that is something that you know, I take quite seriously, particularly because, you know, I don't want to be known for just appeasing to a position or to a title. I want to be known because I've done something for the community. That's why I got elected. That's why I ran for public office. 
not for the title, but for the actual ability to do the work. And you were, you know, you were one of the few, you know, black politicians in um, parliament at the time. And, you know, in your, in your book, uh, and I'm quoting, you know, you say, while I was the only black female in federal, in federal politics, I was not the only black woman experiencing loneliness at work. You know, explain, kind of explain how you, how you uh, managed to, um, you know, communicate with other um, black politicians who were experiencing the same thing that you were. So that's something that I wish I did better. Okay. You know, I wish I, I connected, you know, just with, with um, black female leaders who mm -hmm. were experiencing that loneliness, uh, not just in politics, I was the only one in federal politics, but in provincial, in municipal, in corporate. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that would have at least given me a little bit more of a more respite uh, within this system. I, and I wish if I could go back, if there was one thing that I would change, I would change that and I would do that better. And, you know, earlier you spoke about, you know, being being a token, like you didn't want to be tokenized in um, right. in politics. Um, but, you know, how, I mean, I can imagine how exhausting it was, you know, for you to constantly remind your colleagues that, you know, I'm valuable, you know, I'm as valuable. And, you know, how, how exhausting was that, you know, to, to constantly remind them? That is so exhausting. <laughs> it's... It's, 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 it's more than exhausting. It's frustrating. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. And so when I got the role as parliamentary secretary to international development, I loved it because in that role, I was given like a, a, my, a series of assignments that I had to do in terms of negotiating, in terms of representing the country and having these strategic meetings around, in particular, the, the uh, campaign for security council. And that was actually allowing me to use my, my, my skills and my experience and the assets that I brought to Parliament. Mm. And I thoroughly enjoyed that position uh, when I had it. And, um, but, but that first year, I just, I, just, I just didn't think it was worth it again to sit in a position that I knew I, could, I was underutilized in. And one of the moments you talk about in the book, it was when, you know, when you were, uh, you had the opportunity to meet um, President Obama. That day that you met him, it was, it was an exciting day for you. But then, you know, on the ride home, on the plane ride home, it was kind of awkward because, you know, you describe in the book that Prime Minister Trudeau didn't uh, want to make eye contact. Like he didn't, he didn't want to, he tried to make, you, you know, you were in the back of the plane and wouldn't that be an indication of of being constantly being left behind and, and not um, fulfilling the role that you were supposed to? Uh, you know, absolutely. So uh, on that trip, I, you know, at least thought that I would have, you know, some established some meetings, like just, you know, we were a new administration coming in, uh, having conversations about, I don't know, business or any, just any kind of anything from my background, you know, President Obama had made, you know, a, a investments in brain research that had a four to one return. I thought, you know, at least utilize me for something other than that picture. That was the only reason that I was there. And for the rest of that trip, I just really didn't have a role. And I didn't actually know what I was supposed to be doing. And nobody really talked to me about what I was supposed to be doing while I was there. And it was, again, that 
embarrassment of tokenism um, just made me, it, it was, it was a terrible feeling that I wouldn't want on anybody to be just sitting alone in the back of this huge plane and, you know, in, in my own seat and in an island of empty seats, right? right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, realizing that you're here to serve no purpose other than be Black. And, you know, in the book, you also talk about, you know, that you had to request time to to talk with Prime Minister Trudeau. Like you had to request, what was it, 15 minutes a month or something like that? You had to. Well, yeah, I requested 15 minutes a month because as his parliamentary secretary, I wanted to make sure that we were on the same page. Mm -hmm. Like a parliamentary secretary acts like as a tag team to their minister. So if he's doing events, you know, on the East Coast and he wants me to handle the stuff that's happening on the West Coast, we could just cover more, more ground if we work together. And so I thought, just give me 15 minutes a month with an agenda and I will be able to outline some of the things that you'll be able to tell me what you want me to do during, you know, the next month. I'll be able to say some of the things that I'm also doing during the month and we could at least be on the same page. We're running a country for heaven's sakes. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> we're, not, we're not like, you know, working at the local coffee shop. So we needed to be in sync and that those 15 minutes never materialized. Did you, did you feel like there was anything fulfilling about that job at all? No, I tried to use my framework and, you know, just use it as best as I can to sort of establish some of the relationships that I think were needed. But did I know if it was, if it served the prime minister as best that he could have leveraged me? Absolutely not. I didn't know that. Um, but I, I still did the best that I could to serve my colleagues in caucus, other parliamentary secretaries, um, people that, you know, organizations that came to, to visit on the Hill, um, making sure that I listened to their concerns, but not really knowing if it was actually maximum value for what the prime minister wanted to achieve because that conversation never happened. And you were, you were on the, you know, Liberal Party for, for several years and then you you quit the Liberal Party and then you sat on as an independent, but, yes. um, but you know, people weren't happy about that, <laughs> you know, especially no. black, black voters, you know, they, they weren't happy with the choice that you switched over. Um, how, you know, how did you sort of um, convince them that this was the right decision for you? Well, I think it was more than just black voters. I think it was, you know, my constituents who were liberal who voted at for a liberal um, and anybody who voted for me as a liberal, some of them were not happy. Uh, but, you know, I often quote Clayton Christensen, who's a, who was a professor, he died recently at Harvard. And he says in his essay, how will you measure your life? Um, it, that it's easier to stand by your principles 100% of the time than it is to stand by your principles 98% of the time. And so it's, it was very important for me to stand by my principles and understand that the, the party that, that, I, that I was in was asking me to align with them, even though I didn't believe in some of the things that they were doing. And fundamentally, um, when it came to the treatment of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould at the end with the SNC-Lavalin scandal, we had come out of a movement, a Me Too movement, where we were talking about believing women, believe women when they say that they're harassed, believe women when they say that they're bullied, believe women when they say that they're you know, facing undue pressure. And we decided that as a, as a caucus, that 
you know, we would believe women when it was convenient and leave them when it was not. So we, we believe women, but then when Jody says that I felt pressured and I felt bullied, then we're like, no, well, we don't believe you because it wasn't convenient for them to believe. And I just, I couldn't, that, that, that was, I just thought that was so wrong. Mm. It was so wrong. And it's, it's so didn't, st- it wasn't anything that I stood for. And so again, it was easier for me to stand by my principles 100% of the time and, and walk away from that party, even based on something as, as what may seem to people, it was very simple. But to me, it was a, a fundamental philosophy around intersectional feminism that I would not, that I wouldn't, um, I, I, I wouldn't waver in my, in my decision around that. You also say, you know, if um, if you stayed in the Liberal Party, you know, you wouldn't be able to actually look your kids in the eye. Um, it's very important to me to mm-hmm. be able to look myself in the mirror and look my children in the eye and say the things that I taught you, the things that I value are, are important enough that you can walk away from them if, if they don't align. Right. And, you know, in the end, um, you know, towards the end of your political career, did you do you think that you that you found that you found your voice as a as a strong black independent woman? You know, do you, do you think that you that you found it? Absolutely. Um, I call politics the most painfully beautiful experience I had, and I think that I needed to go through sort of this tug of war with myself and an understanding of what women face um, as women with intersecting identities, as people with intersecting identities how they are marginalized, how they're excluded, how sometimes they are made to feel like they're not worthy, even though they are, to really get to a point where I could advocate them with passion and conviction. And I needed that experience within politics to be able to come to the point and the realization of how powerful my voice is and how I could use it for for the greater good and not just from a North American perspective, from a global perspective, because we have so many women and girls around the world who look like me and you um, in the global south in particular who are who are challenged with you know lack of access to education mm-hmm. lack of access to land rights last lack of access to you know the rights that women and girls need to be able to reach their full potential and contribute to our global economy and um, that is something that i that i'm very passionate about and will continue to raise my voice on for sure and uh, uh, you know there was always this constant um, this constant struggle to remain authentic, whether it was in politics or whether it was in you know whichever role you were you were taking on at the time. What does authenticity mean to you right now? It means being in a space where I can feel joy about what I do, right? I could I could do the things that. I'm really passionate about, and that is really related to activism and advocacy. Mm -hmm. And I could do that in a way that I'm not worried about whether or not people like me because I say things, or they're a fan, or they, you know, if I'm being gaslit, it doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm using my voice for the greater good. Mm -hmm. And that, that is authentically being me. And you know, my last question for you is, you know, the the young the young black um, boys and girls who want to enter politics, who want to um, take on the roles that you did. How do you how do you assure them that you know, even though these these you know political roles are 
historically not designed for people who look like us you know how how do they how do you uh, assure them that they can make a difference um and i would say this to any young um person uh especially those with multiple intersecting identities i would say show up show up authentically and know that your voice matters know that every experience um every mistake hurt pain joy triumph strength that you have ever experienced combined with your education combined with your your career once you get into your career experience adds value to you and therefore is an asset to any organization political or otherwise that you join you bring value to that that space and make sure that you use that value and you you speak to that value that you bring to that organization and more importantly that that organization appreciates the value that you bring i would remember that forever um well i i just want to thank you selena for, for taking the time to um to talk to me today i know you have a busy schedule <laughs> thank you vershka i appreciate it thank you so much and thank you for using this platform for having these great conversations i appreciate you thank you thank you so much